Thank you, Mary Catherine. It's uh, good for us to be reminded of the goodness of the Lord, how he provides for us in ways that we never thought possible or expected, in ways that are surprising. And it's uh, in the midst of that surprising thing that we're looking at the life of David, and that's where we're going to be spending the next foreseeable period of time. Um, uh, because the life of David is surprising. It doesn't make sense. He's not a stable person. He's not a person that we would be like, ah, yes, this will be the man after God's own heart. He's, he's, he, he feels too deeply. He's, he, he veers too deeply into sadness, into joy. Everything that David does, he seems to do to, to extremes that we would find either uh, uncomfortable or unseemly based on his position. But yet this is a man after God's own heart, and that's why we're going to spend some time looking at him. What can we learn from this person that God worked so deeply in and yet and, the, and who had these hor- horrible failures that we can't imagine, but yet God was still working in his life. So, um, But before we get there... Um, What we're going to talk about is, before we got there, last week we talked about David's great-grandmother, how in Ruth, David found a foundational story for his life, where Ruth uh, was a woman marked by loyalty and faithfulness and trust in God in the midst of all evidence to the contrary. And as as David's great-grandmother, I believe that that informed who he was, and but also the, something that we need to, to look at to, in order to shape our view of who David was and what he did, we need to look at the, the king who came before him, who was King Saul. And, and throughout the Bible, the life of David is contrasted to the life of, uh, of Saul. It's something that we need to, to keep track of as we go forward. So Saul was the first king, and, and David only became king that after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So everything about uh, David, am I not? Oh, okay. Everything about, uh, maybe I'm just not. Oh, I'm not plugged in. That's why. Oh, okay. Well, good to know. Um, Thank you, TV people and podcast people. Uh, Everything's for you. Uh, So, yeah. (laughs) Um, where was I? Oh, uh, yeah. So we only meet David first in his contrasting image to fall and, 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 and Saul's downfall fall forms David's rise. And, and in some ways, Saul's downfall is the downfall of his people as well. So it's going to help us to look at Saul and how he became king. So, um, Saul becomes king in, uh, about first Samuel, uh, eight and 15. So uh, this is where we're going to see this. So when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel, and the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And when they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now this is... Uh, a fascinating thing that we need to pay attention to and, and, and keep our eyes pointed at this because they're, they're, they're not just escaping the rule of, of two kings who want to, uh, of two judges who are taking bribes, but, but they want a king to judge us like all the other nations. This is going to be a, a, a hint to us that, that, we, uh, that, that something has gone wrong because the people of Israel were never intended to be like all the other nations. 
They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be a people called out, a city on a hill. And their difference was supposed to bless and point people towards the Lord. The fact that that God was blessing them in the midst of not doing things the way that all of the other nations did was, was supposed to guide them and make other people notice that there's something different and maybe our way of living, following our own ways, following our own kings, following our own gods is not the best way to do. Out of the following of the Lord in His Torah or instruction, uh, that that they were going to find uh, that that other people were going to be best, but but rather than that, the people of Israel see here that we want to be like everyone else, and I think it's quite right that we as Christians find ourselves wary or or uh, make ourselves aware that there's something potentially dangerous in wanting to be like everybody else. There's something that that that, that is not what we've been called to in that, and that. There's times when we should be all things to all people. That's a good thing to do. But, but in the midst of that, we should always be a little bit wary that we're not just asking to be like all of the other nations. But it continues, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they have to say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing for you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is really interesting. God condescends to them and says, yeah, what they want is wrong, but we're going to give it to them anyway, because this is just the way that things go. And we, and we see again, as I've talked about before, the passive wrath of God. Much more often than seeing the active wrath of God, I'm going to smite and rain fire and brimstone, we see the passive wrath of God where he just says, okay, fine, have it your way. This is what you want. This is what you're going to get. And Samuel uh, tells them what's going to happen when they, get, when they get a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to, to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, and some to plow his grounds and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. It's fascinating to me that in the midst of this, he warns them how bad it's going to get. I'm going to give it to you the way that you want it. And this is going to be terrible for you. And the king that you have chosen for yourselves is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to make you cry out to me. He warns them how bad it's going to be. But they... They, they say, fine, that's fine, we'll take that anyway. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, this is very interesting to me. Because everything that we know about the history of the people of Israel, from, their, from the, the, the leaving of Egypt to their arrival in the Promised Land, to get them to this point, who has gone before them? 
The Lord has gone before them. Who has fought their battles for them? The Lord has fought their battles for them. And now all of a sudden they're saying, we don't want that. We want a, we want a, we want a, we want a king. We want somebody who looks impressive. We want somebody who looks powerful. We want somebody who to, we, we, we need a thing that we can see and that person will take care of everything for us. And, and, and I think that this is so fascinating because as much as we look at this ancient world and we're like, ah, those people back then were just so different, you know, they, they, they were so unenlightened. I feel like there's something very similar in us when we look at celebrity culture or we look at uh, some sort of political leader or we look at anyone and we're like, that person is going to fix everything for us. It's always dangerous for us. We need to be aware and beware of that impulse to take another human being and place on them hopes and desires that are only fit to be on God. And I'm not just talking about in politics. It's pretty obvious where it happens there. That happens within evangelical church culture as well. Uh, For about the last 20 years, I've been listening to church folk, not so much in this church, but in the grander church sphere. and, And I've heard like probably hundreds of times who is going to be the next Billy Graham? Who is, who, who is going to be that person that gets like is famous and has like lots of crowds of people listen to them and then we can just watch all the people come down on TV to Just As I Am and who's going to have those kinds of big crusades? And, and I am in no way disparaging the ministry of Billy Graham. Billy Graham was awesome and amazing and, 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 uh, and more so than his numerical success, I'm fascinated by his integrity as a human being. But there is no next Billy Graham. And the reason why there's no next Billy Graham isn't because uh, there's any sort of failure in current leaders, but who brought the crowds? It wasn't Billy Graham. Who saved the people? Who went before them and fought their battles? It wasn't Billy Graham. It was the Lord. So maybe rather than looking for the next Billy Graham, we should be looking and saying, God, how are you going to work in our time? How are you going to work in our age? Where's the leadership? Where are the people going to come from? And even if it doesn't look like the past, we're going to trust you. I see this all of the time in evangelical subculture, and and it frustrates me to no end because a a new celebrity or already famous person will come to Jesus. Brand new Christian, they'll come to Jesus. This happened with Stephen Baldwin. It It happened with that kid that was on that sitcom, Two and a Half Men. I've never watched it, but anyway. But like they came to know Jesus and within minutes, some pastor is being like they're they're like displaying them for the world like some sort of fish that they just caught, you know, and they're just like they're like, here's my new trophy. Look, look at this famous person that I brought in. And that poor famous person who is brand new as a Christian goes out to the world and they get torn to bits because they don't have the maturity to handle the, 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 the platform that they've been given. And I'm not saying that they're bad people. They're doing the best that they can. But no c- good leader should take a brand new person who's brand new to Jesus and say, hey, go broadcast yourself to the world. That's going to go well for you. No, And we're so eager to have these celebrity trophies go before us that we're like, yes, please, Stephen Baldwin, come talk to us, even though you've been a Christian for 15 minutes. Yes, please, new sitcom kid, come and speak at our conference, even though you've been a Christian for seven and a half minutes. Like, 
I'm not saying that there's nothing good about it, but we should beware when there's something in ourselves that is constantly looking for the next celebrity to pin our hopes to. The Lord is enough. Jesus is enough. And if we constantly find ourselves looking for idols to, to be a substitute faith for us, we're, we're, we're walking in a dangerous direction. Let a king judge us and go before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey them, obey their voice and make them a king. And then Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his own city. Okay, so we skip, skip a while, a couple of things happen. But this is when we start to meet Saul, that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, and from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, this is fascinating because this is where we meet Saul and we get his qualifications as king of Israel. And his qualifications are that he is handsome, that he is tall, and that his dad is rich. Now, anyone who is familiar with the high school movies of the 1980s knows that this is not the hero of the story. This is the villain of the story, right? If you've seen an 80s high school movie, the tall, handsome son of the rich guy is never the good person in the story. He's always the person that we need to watch out for. This is the kid. Saul's the kid, and we meet him. He's got the letterman's jacket. He's got giant hair. He's driving a convertible, and, and, he, and, he, and he's probably picking on the nerdy kid. Like, this is the person that we meet. Saul looked like a king. And so when God says, fine, they can have a king, I think it's fascinating that God says, you want a king? Well, here's one. This is what you get. And he's going to be taller than everybody else, and he's going to be richer than everybody else, and he's going to be more handsome than everybody else. And let's see how that goes for you. And, and, this is, and these qualifications make the following stories that we hear about Saul so interesting. Because when we first... Uh, meet David after his anointing, when David has his big moment as David and Goliath. Da Goliath's primary uh, recorded uh, impact was his size. Goliath is bigger than anyone else. So who should be going out to fight Goliath? Maybe the person who's head and shoulders taller than everybody else? But Saul doesn't do that. We see that Saul, while he's marked by all of the outward appearances, something inside him is not change. Saul was, but in the midst of this, Saul was anointed by the Lord. And this comes out in the following passages that the spirit of the Lord did come upon him and he had moments of greatness. God did work in him. And there was moments where he did do the right thing and do amazing thing because the Lord is with him. But he was marked rather than by what, what he was marked by rather than what we see in David, which was trust and obedience and loyalty. Those, those qualities that we saw coming out of Ruth, Saul was marked in a lack of trust, and that lack of trust turned into a lack of obedience. And it comes out to a head here in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah. And now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. 
I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, I know that sounds terrible. It is terrible. Uh, I'm just going to push that aside for a minute. Don't get caught up in the, like, why do we have to kill everybody? I don't really have a great answer for that, but we're going to work about that, work that out later. But I, I want us to focus on the instruction, that the instruction for Saul at this point in time is that he is to, 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 to roll in and destroy everything, okay? Um, and the demand of the Lord was to, was, was to and, and, and it's interesting why he says to do this. I think, and, I, and there's two reasons why he says to destroy everything. One, uh, people in, in ancient times, right or wrong, saw the worship of other gods as a contagion that needed to be excised. Okay? So if, if you were going to allow people to, to live, their worship of false gods was going to form as a virus, and then that was going to infect all of the people. That was the way that they saw it. I'm not saying that they were right, but that was just the way that things were, were seen at the time. That was one of the things that they well, were called to get rid of. But... Another thing that's interesting is that the reason why they were called to, to destroy not just the people but all of their possessions is because God was very clear that this was not how the people of Israel were to get rich. Okay, We see this in, in, in back in the story of Abraham. There's a story of Abraham in, in Jeremiah, uh, sorry, Jeremiah, in, in Genesis, uh, I believe it's chapter 14, where um, Lot, his nephew, is kidnapped by some other kings. And, and uh, Abraham and his people roll out and they, and, they, uh, and they destroy the armies and they destroy the kings and they get Lot and all of his stuff back. And all of the other kings that were on Abraham's side said, hey, let us keep the slaves and then you can have all of the, the, the money and the property and all of that kind of stuff. And Abraham says, no, because I don't want people to think that, that I got rich off of this. I don't want people to think that I got rich off of plundering another person's thing. And this is fascinating that the Lord is very concerned that Saul not become someone who is seen or viewed as getting wealthy off destroying other empires and stealing their stuff. Because that was a, a, an, a viable economic uh, product for kingdoms at the time. That was how the people of Assyria made their livings. The king had a big army. The army would go in, it would walk into another kingdom, say, please pay us a certain portion of your stuff or something bad will happen to you. If they didn't, the army rolled in, destroyed everything and took all of their stuff. Their main domestic product was plunder in the same way that, that Alberta runs on oil and agriculture and, and gambling. Uh, the, uh, the people of Assyria ran off plunder. God is trying to make sure that the people of uh, Israel do not run that way. So, Saul does it. Uh, he has a, a victory over Amalekak, Amalek and Agag and his army. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not alter, utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless they vo devoted to destruction. Now, I want to be really clear because I've heard some people say that, like, um, God punished Saul because he refused to destroy everything out of an act of mercy. That's not at all what happened here. It's a complete misunderstanding of the text. When, when they say all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to, discussion, to destruction, that includes the poor people. That includes the women and the children and things that were not of use to them. But what they kept was 
fattened calves and lambs and sheep and oxen and all that was good. They said, okay, well, let's get rid of all of these inconvenient things, but let's keep the things that will make us rich. And then he spares Agag as well, not because he wants to be merciful, but because Agag was the king of another people. And as the king of another people, Saul knew that if I kill this guy, the next guy that comes and takes my stuff is going to kill me. But if I spare him, then maybe they'll see that I'm a person willing to negotiate. That wasn't what God called him to do. God called him to say, destroy everything. Trust me, I'm where your safety is going to be found. Saul is playing the game of kings at this point. The game of plunder and of negotiation and, and, and of making sure that your throne is secure. And God never wanted him to. Saul is trusting in power and might and wealth, and he's operating as the rest of the nations do, as the people wanted him to, but the way that God had never intended for the people to do. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, it was, it, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Generally, setting up a monument for yourself is seen as a negative thing in Scripture. Um, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now he's lying on top of it, right? Did he perform the commandment of the Lord? And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, I have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Well, I just kept this little bit that I'm, I just disobeyed a little bit because that's going to help me sacrifice to you. Then Samuel said, stop, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And again, he said to him, speak. Now, this is... Uh, Samuel continues Samuel said though you are little in your own eyes are you not the head of the tribe of Israel the Lord has anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said go devote to destruction the sinners the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And, and Saul said to Samuel, I have, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag and the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction and to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgad. Now this should sound familiar to us. Because as soon as Saul is confronted with his own sin, what does he say? Yes, I did this and I take responsibility for it. No, he says, but these people that you put me in charge of, they did the sinning. Which sounds very familiar to me going all the way back to Genesis 3 when God confronts Adam and says, what did you do? And Adam says, this woman that you put here gave me fruit and then I aid at trying to remove ourselves as much as possible from the sin that we've committed, but that's not the way that we work. And I think it's fascinating to look at what, God, what Saul, Samuel's diagnosis of Saul is. Because we might think that Saul's diagno, the, the diagnosis of Saul was that he was greedy, that he was arrogant, that he was too big for his own britches. But what does Sam, how does Samuel identify his problem right at the top? Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, 
Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Though you are little in your own eyes. Saul's problem was not that he was overly arrogant. Saul's problem was that he was insecure. And his insecurity led him to not trust God. And his insecurity said that if I'm king, I need to look like I'm king. I need to set up a monument. I need to have a lot of riches. I need to have a big army because I don't feel strong enough in the power that God has given me to actually be the king that God has called me to be. I need to prop myself up with all of these other things because you're little in your own eyes. God is not expecting that Saul is going to be less confident. He wants him to be more confident. He wants him to trust more in the Lord and more deeply in the Lord so he can look at all of these riches and say, I don't need those things. And this is interesting. So in the midst of his insecurity, Saul doesn't take ownership of his own sin but passes it off onto other people. But that's not an excuse. It's not... Like, Saul is their leader. It's his job to ensure that the right things are done. And this is this is, should be a concern for all of us, including me, who, who have been called to Christian leadership, is that, that giving the people what they want is never an excuse for disobeying what the Lord has called us to. We should be concerned. Oh. So Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and and to listen to the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you as king. Now, this is not something that we have to concern ourselves in some ways. Because we don't have a king like Saul who was disobedient. We have a king in Jesus who was a fully who was fully obedient, a full and better king who was obedient even to death on the cross. And because of his obedience, the Bible tells us that his righteousness is imputed onto us so that we are not bound by the limits of our own faithfulness, but by the limits of Jesus. But we ought to be concerned so we can be confident that we are in no way cast out. But we ought to be concerned if we find ourselves uh, uh, wanting and desiring to be like all of the other nations. If we find ourselves like everybody else, valuing wealth and power and success and fame more than we value trusting the Lord, more than we value following in His ways, then we ought to be concerned. Saul's problem was not that the Lord was not with him. It was that he didn't trust the Lord enough to do the Lord's work in the Lord's ways. And because of that, God said, I can't work with you anymore. I need to find a man after my own heart, a person after my own heart, who is willing to be obedient and do everything that I asked of them. And I think that this is a fascinating place to start for us because we're about to have a congregational meeting and one of the things that we're going to be talking about over the next little while and I'm going to be talking about specifically is is what are the next steps for us as a church what is the vision that we're talking about where is where is God calling us to and where are we going and uh and you know there's a a plan that is uh formatting into something way more uh I would like it to be more concrete than it actually is but um I've got an idea but I want us to be clear in this that no, no matter what plan we have, that success for us is not going to be found in more, merely in more people coming or merely 
in 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 like exploding this room into like and having multiple service and and having budgets that are, that are exploding all over the part and, and and having other churches recognize how cool and awesome we are those those would be great things i would love them i would love for this room to be filled with you know, 181 people is the most that we can have by the fire code i would like to do that a couple of, you know i would love it if that was was happening but that is not going to be the primary way that we define our success. Those are things that are good and that they would be on it. awesome. But the primary calling that we have as a church is the same as it's been for the last uh, 103 years, which is faithfulness to the Lord, trust in Him, and obedience to what He has called us to. And we believe that it's in trusting and obeying the Lord that we are going to truly follow our joy because we don't want to be like Saul, to have the Lord with us and still screw it up because we didn't trust Him enough. We want to be like David, who in the midst of his flaws went boldly forward and, and did what God had called him to and, and, was, and re- was rewarded and honored because of that. Let's pray. God. We ask that we would not be distracted by things that will give us the appearance of strength, that by things that will give us the appearance of success, by things that will give us the appearance of importance. But we pray that we would find true success and importance and value in being obedient and trusting that you are working in and amongst us. We don't want to be just like all of the other nations. We want to be a holy people set apart for you. People who are marked by love for our neighbor, people who are marked by grace and forgiveness and peace and, and, and blessing for everyone that is around us. We believe that that is what you have called us to. So as we sing songs, may our hearts and minds be pointed in a direction towards you as we meet at your table. May we find a connection with you that carries us through the rest of our week. And as we gather later as your people to, to, to may the words that we speak to each other remind us of your truth, that you are with us, that you are on our side, and that we need only trust in you rather than, rather than in the things of this world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.